Are we recording? Is this thing on? Yes, it is. Welcome to RevOps 500, where we invite the world's top marketers to answer the tough questions facing growing organizations. Ooh, sounds important. I'm Sajil Qureshi. And I'm Gil Bay. Join us as we dive deep into the world of RevOps. We'll be learning strategies and expertise from first-hand experience. RevOps 500 is sponsored by Computech. They provide technical and development expertise to growth-focused marketing. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Sajil Qureshi here with another episode of RevOps 500, where we interview the world's latest and greatest marketing superstars in RevOps. Uh, today, we have an extremely special guest. I am uh, really pumped to be talking to him. He has uh, single-handedly built an incredible onboarding program for an entire SDR organization. He's an unforgettable leader in the sales space. Uh, you know, he's really process-driven, data-curious. He motivates everybody around him. Uh, right now, he's the Director of Revenue Enablement at User Gems, Braxton Carr. Welcome Thank to Revops so 500. Excited. All right, so Braxton, yeah, really glad you're here. Uh, first question is, what is one RevOps myth that you can share with our audience? <laughs> that all revenue is good revenue. I think, uh, I think that's a new one, and I think it's becoming more relevant um, as sustainable growth becomes the topic du jour. Okay, so the myth is all revenue is good revenue. Okay, so let's, let's, let's break that down a little bit. So what, what do you mean by, like, it, it, w give us an example of bad revenue. Do you have an example of that or? I have a couple. I mean, yeah. think about what selling was like even just a couple of years ago with the growth at all cost concept. A lot of times you would see companies, um, for example, selling to a customer where there's no fit from like a business capability perspective, right? So you're selling solutions or services to business problems and requirements that are outside of your organization's guardrails. Um, another example could be of like kicking the can down the road, right? Selling to a customer, even if it might be to the detriment of another department or a team. Like I'm sure in your own career, you've probably seen there are plenty of companies where they'll be in a situation where the initial sale provides a ton of upside to the sales rep, but then the implementers of the sale own all of the downside risk. So it actually takes away from the quality of that revenue. Okay. So that's, those are examples of, of bad revenue. So, you know, when you, when you sell something, it's great, but then on the other side of it, you know, like the cost of the, the cost of, of, of being, of having that revenue is higher than the actual revenue itself. Absolutely. So what's an example of now good revenue? Well, what would you say is good revenue? Yeah, great question. I think there's a lot of examples of it. Um, a couple of come to mind are the ones that consider like customer lifetime value, right? If I can sell to a customer who is likely to buy from me multiple times over and over again, no matter what their role is or what company they may be at, that's, I think, the best type of revenue you can have. Um, another example might be people that are coming from like, customer advocacy programs, right? You create a group of raving fans. I think we've seen a lot of successful companies in the space. Um, you know, Gong is a great example of this, where they really yeah. cure their community of people that are both power users and buyers and end users. And this creates like a cascading effect of people um, that I think continue to be revenue generators for the company. Yeah, so you have this advocacy group or evangelists, and then they they are the ones like who kind of they're 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 blowing the horn of the of the company's product, and they're they're bringing in usership of that product. That's yeah. and and how, so you know how do you how do you build something like that? I mean, like you know, it's 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 not easy, right, to do stuff like that. 
No, it's not easy. Um, I think there's a couple of ways that you can go about it. And some of them require certain tools, but some of them I think are more philosophical, right? I mean, one of them is certainly just, and I think this is most important for younger maturing companies, right? The identification of uh, the ideal customer profile. I think when companies are earlier stage and their technology can be applied a lot of different ways, there's always the question of, well, what is, what is the best possible application of this tool for the market, right? So they want to focus on how they market and generate leads and opportunities that fall within the ICP. Um, not to say that they should never go outside the guardrails because things will change over time, um, but you want to proceed with full knowledge and make an assessment of all the upside and downside risks associated with the pursuit. I think another way of doing it, I mean, certainly working at a place like UserGems is probably top of mind for me, um, but I think institutionalizing and programatizing following around the people that are familiar and fond of your product, um, whether they're at an all new company or whether maybe they've joined a target account that you're working right now. Um, I think if you can leverage that type of information, not only do you always have the warmest paths into uh, your potential ICP account, you're guaranteed to have a champion there, even if they're not working the deal immediately. So that's another way that I think you can build it out. Yeah. So following following your uh, your customers around as they move from company to company. Some people do that, right? You know, they might they might like a CRM at one company, they do a good job with it. Then when they switch companies, they'll pull out the existing CRM and replace it with the one that they know. And then they'll, so it helps with like, as a product perspective, you know, you can, st- you can stick with the company and they become like an evangelist somehow. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's interesting. Like, I think at some level, this has always been happening. It's funny. I was just on a call before this talking about this. Like if you're a sales rep, right? And let's say you're, you're using LinkedIn Sales Navigator, you get the update. If Braxton's at a new company, sales rep is not going to think, oh, like I can't wait to let my ops team know that like there's this new data. They're going to go out and like try to close the deal as soon as possible. So yeah. even in that sense, now you've got ops and sales working now from different data. You've got those silos, but if you can find a way to make sure that that data leads back to the CRM, which is supposed to be, you know, effectively your, your quote unquote, sole source of truth. Mm-hmm. Now you've got clean data that actually represents the people that are most likely to buy it, which I think is a dream scenario, both for the, the rep and operations. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you, if you have the data, you know, if it's, if it's true data, you can really do a lot of good you know, for your sales. If you, if you kind of connect them to, which is all, of, all in the world of RevOps. So, Talking about data and technology, CRM, what is something that keeps you up technically at night these days? Oh, man. What doesn't keep me up technically? <laughs> the first one that's coming to mind for me is definitely like data cleanliness. Um, I mean, that's been true, I think, for a long time when it comes yep. to operations. But you want to make sure that your reps are being given the easiest possible at-bats and talking to the people that are most likely to buy from them. So a big question that I try to answer technically, and again, I'm fortunate to be working at user gems where it's easy. Um, how can I fill out opportunity contact data in the most automated way? So whether that's gathering information from people that have been on meetings, whether that's mm-hmm. gathering information about people that are leaving and joining target accounts, or rather that's uh, getting information in front of the reps um, that has to do with someone that they spoke to before that is now somewhere else. Um, once that happens, I think the other big question is, how do we route that information to the reps in a way that's beneficial for the customer, right? Because there's nothing worse than imagine if like, imagine if there's a pool that you love, you know yeah. that you love, 
going to buy it again. And you reach out and now you're going through a qualification call with like an ADR. You're like, come on, like I'm trying to yeah. buy it yesterday. And yeah. You, and I care about this tool. So how can we accelerate the process? So I think from a technical perspective, it's also um, what kind of routing automation do you want to build that indicates, hey, this person is likely a very fast mover. Let's get them in front of the AE ASAP. Yeah, and give them the right data they have so they know they're not just talking to someone off the street. They're talking to somebody who already knows this thing really well and they can talk to them intelligently versus trying to you know, qualify them as a, as a lead for a, for a sales rep or something. 100%. And you know what's interesting? You, obviously, you and I right now are speaking within the scope of, of SaaS, but we're right. not the only industry that's going through this. I read a really interesting report the other day. So I live in San Francisco now. Mm -hmm. uh, Hendrick Automotive um, owns a couple yeah. of cars. And the guy that owns the dealerships, he was saying, you know, I actually refuse to sell cars to people that live outside of a 25 mile radius of my dealerships. And of wow. course, he's looking at me the same way you're looking at me now. The interviewer is like, well, well, why is that? And he goes, well, think about it. Like if I sell a car to someone that lives a hundred miles from here, they're never going to buy likely another car from right. my dealership again. There's no real value to that customer. Whereas if I sell a car to someone that lives in the neighborhood, when that car gets older and they want to trade it in, they're going to come back to one of my dealerships and I'll give them a different car. And this is how I can derive the maximum potential value from my quote unquote raving fans. And I thought it was really interesting thinking about this idea of sustainable revenue now, not only ICP wise, but also geographically. Yeah. I mean, you, you have, I mean, in, in that case, you know, like, yeah, the geography makes sense. And, you know, that's part of his, their ICP. If you no, I mean, let's, 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 let's unpack that a little bit. So if you, if you have that, and that's part of your ICP is, is a geography. I mean, is, is there, is there the repeat, is repeatability there on a large ticket item like a vehicle where people go back to the same dealership if the price and the promise is not the same? How do, how do you deliver like a great customer experience to get like somebody to, to stay loyal to buying a big ticket item like that, I wonder, I mean, is, is it the same as SaaS as an, an outside of SaaS or? I think, and it's funny that you say this, because I, I, that was the same question that I had reading the article. It actually went on to say, look, when it comes to big ticket items like cars, mm -hmm. oftentimes people are loyal to the car brand that they, they feel drawn to. There are guys out there, and the, you, you've heard the jokes all the time, um, people that don't use their turn signals or BMW owners. Those yeah, yeah. Right? The BMW guys, no matter yeah. what car they own, it's probably going to end up being a BMW. So if read familiarity with Hendrick Automotive that owns the BMW, when their 2005 M3 mm -hmm. is starting to go kaput, they're probably thinking about the 2016 M3. Mm. The easiest place to go get that is going to be a dealership they already worked with, they already have a level of trust with. So on one end, it's geographic. On the other end, in this actually similar to what you and I were just talking about. Yeah. They're thinking about how can I curate the best buying experience for the people within my ICP, e.g. for them geographically, mm -hmm. e.g. for us, some form of firmographic data. So there's interesting parallels between even big ticket items like cars and quote unquote smaller ticket items like SaaS. That is a, a very profound and interesting way to 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 kind of you know pull in an ICP and with with, with good data and using ge geography to do it. So let's say, let's talk, let's go back to data cleansing. How do you solve a problem like data cleansing? Well, what are you, what are you doing to, to solve a problem like that? Yeah, well, it's actually really interesting um, because I 
myself and uh, our VP of operations, Joss, get to do this in-house with, uh, with our own tool. And there are other tools out there that do it. But for us, you know, when we have, let's say, a lead that goes to another company, right? So again, with my example, Braxton has left Canto for user gems. The user gems technology will actually automatically create uh, a new contact record with that information. But it won't overwrite the old one. It'll link that to the old record. Which is great because now I've got the storyline of Braxton's movement associated with both accounts that he's been at. And so you're filling out that record with really interesting things. Like, for example, NPS scores, what the buyer committee was when I bought last time, um, what the difference in role is to where I've gone before. And so when you think about this concept of curating the buying experience for the reps, this makes it very easy because they're going into the call with not only the full storyline of my career arc, but the full storyline of my customer lifetime value arc. And now every customer that we speak to has got a really tightly curated story and that makes it easy for them to buy from us again. And how, but how, how can, how can, how can companies do this effectively? I mean, this is a lot of work. I mean, that we're talking about, you know, even to have like that, that full story arc is, is a very, I mean, for, for, I mean, your, your reps have got to love you, Braxton. I mean, like, I mean, how, how do you, yeah, how do, how do, how do, how do people, you know, who don't, how can, how can they put that together basically is, is the question. Yeah. Well, the first step of it is certainly, I mean, the, the conceptual part, right? You have to understand from like a Salesforce closed one report, who are the people that are, uh, our main buyers. That's step A. And there's a lot of faulty data in there, right? You're going to see a lot of stuff that maybe it's, like conceptually interesting, but statistically insignificant. So you want to work through that from the analytics perspective. And you, and you don't want to overdo it either, right? You want to make sure that it's focused in on tight. So tight. let's our own example. We know that our main people are going to be people that are heads of rev ops, people mm -hmm. that are heads of sales, people that are heads of marketing, potentially people that are heads of sales development. Now we've got that report with all the accounts from which they've worked. Now what we want to do is we want to sync up a tool and there are a couple of tools out there that do it. You know, user gems is one. There's another tool out there called Champify is another tool out there called pipeline signals. Now what we want to do are connect those closed one reports to a tool that automates the tracking of that. Yeah. But the next step, and I think this is actually probably the most important step is now connecting that tool to whatever your routing process is. And I, I think that like cannot be overlooked because the routing is what's the, the physical pipage for how those leads are being assembled, right? So now from the technical perspective, we wanna sync up for each of these types of leads that are coming in, what is the automated strategy for something like, for example, a lean data book it or a chili piper to route these out, add propensity to buy, and then of course, loop that back. Loop it back. So you can kind of see, uh, well, I guess actually there is a video of it. If people can be able to see with my hands how the yeah. loop continues to regenerate. And this is how you can think of sustainable pipeline um, visually. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you're, you're using the full, like a full tech stack to give your, your reps the best at-bats they possibly have to, to, you know, to, to close, to close more deals. I hope so. I hope so. Maybe the next one of these, we'll have to interview one of the, uh, the user gems reps to see if they corroborate. Uh, I'm sure that they would, though. 
I don't think we need to do that. I mean, I think, I think, I think it's pretty academic from what you're, what you're saying. <laughs> so let's, I mean, look, let's, let's, let's shift gears. So, I mean, the future, I mean, you know, we've talked about how ICPs like in, in the car world outside of SaaS is, is how similar to SaaS even. Is that kind of where you see the future of RevOps going I mean, or, or something else? What do you feel like the, the future of all this is? Yeah, well, I think what's going to be interesting about this, and this is kind of another, um, yes, I think that what you're starting to see is we're expanding beyond just sales and marketing, owning revenue accountability. You know, like, I think this is a big myth to dispel. So like, there's a lot of examples of this. Um, it's funny, like I was at a sales pickoff recently for the company where I was at for this. And, you know, like the usual suspects are presenting to the room, the CEO, the CRO, CMO, CXO, what have you. Um, but what I think was really interesting, what's remained salient for me is the CFO presented to the entire sales organization and garnered their feedback, right? Presenting ideas on how the office of the CFO um, could assist the reps to identify and mitigate obstacles early in the process. Now, why is this happening? It's because as we start focusing more on customer lifetime value rather than just raw ARR, more departments are able to have a hand in sales being a team sport. So I think, you know, from a technical perspective, being able to fill out as much information about that storyline as possible is going to be super important. But from a functional perspective, being able to bring in departments that wouldn't ordinarily, right, in old school sales, be involved, create more of a true B2B experience where everyone is in the room figuring out how this works at many different levels. And I think that creates not only a stickier product, but also a better buying experience because yep. everyone across the company now that brings on any tool can feel perfectly simpatico with what the potential outcomes are. Yeah. And then they can also have skin in the game of making a change on it, right? Like you ever call people and they have the, if the customer support comes in and they feel like, well, I can't make a change here. I'm not, I'm not at liberty to make the change. Whereas maybe, maybe they've got like the flexibility and stuff like that to do it. And that's, that's something big to, to have, right? I mean, like, so if you're talking about like an integrated experience and revenue is not just tied into sales and marketing, it's tied everywhere, which is a very unique way of looking at it. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a great shift, right? The more stakeholders that you have involved in the value chain, First of all, of course, like from a salesperson's perspective, the more propensity to buy. But to your point, which is a really interesting one, um, the easier it is to pivot because what you're creating is a kinetic chain of movement without any real bottlenecks. Um, so I think okay. the experience, the more that we think about this concept of sustainable revenue and championship lifetime value, um, will continue to go that way. Yeah, it's almost like the Ritz Carlton almost does RevOps, right? You know, where you feel like, like, you ever hear those stories from like, you know, school or maybe from a textbook or like a case study, something on, on like the, on TV, you know, they do like a, like the, even like the bellhops, the, um, like the, 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 the room service, the cleaners, they have, they can like, they can, they can like make liberties on, 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 on purchasing. Like they can say like, for example, if they did, if a guest is coming in, they say, look, this person likes this kind of pillow let's swap it out and let's put like a little note for the person and drop it off there. They're very, very sophisticated, even in the, in every sort of touch point with the customer. Right. And so what that does is it creates that stickiness that you're talking about. It really is like almost like a futuristic RevOps function in a way. Is that, is that kind of what you would say? Or. I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it. And you're, you're making me think about every experience I've had at like a luxury resort now. And it's interesting, right? Because think about it. We talk about a lot um, outside the scope of hospitality. I want to create a five-star experience, right? You think about five-star hotels, Ritz-Carlton, the Four Seasons, St. Regis, what have you. Why are these five-star hotels? It's because 
the amount of friction that is involved in service or receiving a certain experience is basically zero. zero. So when you think about like creating, like now everyone owning this revenue accountability, the friction in both buying and renewing a SaaS product that is uniquely tethered to your outcomes is getting closer to zero. And that's how I think we think about like the five-star experience. That's how we can create that, I think, in a B2B SaaS environment. Yeah. You know, if you just say, well, like, okay, I can, I can move the needle for you. I can, I, they, they, yeah, the five-star experience, you really hear, you rarely hear the words no, or you, you hear maybes, you hear a lot of, I can, how about we do this instead? This is, might be something I can do, but they really don't say no. So they, they say, I, unfortunately, maybe that's not possible, but this is possible. They always kind of keep options open in those five-star experience. So maybe the RevOps world is going to become more like a, more of a white gloves thing in, in real life that we're, that people have when they're in, in like a luxury world, maybe who knows. I think that's what we're all aiming for in a way. I think that's what we've been aiming for for a long time. We just haven't necessarily had the data, the tools, or the alignment to do so. Everyone has always wanted to create a five-star buying experience. But I think another thing that we're thinking about now, continuing with our luxury resort analogy, part of the reason that you never hear no are because the experiences that they've curated to put together for you, they know the okay. scope that's going to be with it right? Whether yeah. it's clothes, the chocolates, the dinners, um, when the concierge is hooking you up with, say, if you're in Hawaii, or the surfing or the kayaking or what have you, they are so on top of the things that they are likely to hear and the objections to them that they're likely to hear. It appears as though there's no way you could get a no. And the truth is they are so locked in to on their rights and what the outcomes are. It just seems that way. And I, so I think there's a lot to be taken from that. Yeah. I mean, this is a, uh... You know, we're, we're in a RevOps conversation. You're talking about, you know, Hawaii and, you know, like uh, luxury hotels and cars. And like, you know, you're, you're very, uh, you're very interesting guy, Rex. <laughs> hey, let it be known. RevOps is fun. That's, that's, that's not a myth. RevOps is totally fun. I mean, like, so I mean, like, like t tell me about yourself. What's your story? I've grown up across like a diverse set of experiences. So I'm born in the States, but I moved to Southern France and I was like three months old. Oh, okay. There until I moved to England, which is where my dad's from. He's English and Palestinian and lived in London um, until I moved back to the States in uh, high school. So I think with my dad being foreign and my mom's black from the States and then growing up across the world, I think I've always had a mind for like drawing unexpected connections between things because it makes, you know, moving through cultures, I think, a lot easier. Um, so I think to this conversation, hopefully if people are listening and they're starting to realize, wow, like maybe RevOps really is like buying a car. Um, hopefully that also drives people not only to learn a bit more about themselves in the B2B SaaS environment, but, um, try to see connections through uh, more worldview lines. So, I mean, like that, that's your background. Did you always know you wanted to be in RevOps or was it something you, you know, you just kind of stumbled into or you in marketing before? So I started my career at Adobe as a salesperson. Okay. Uh, I like Adobe Experience Cloud. And pretty early on, this was in 2016, 2017, I recognized it was very hard for companies to go um, downstream. If you start out selling a product that's, you know, seven-figure ticket, it's tough to now chop that apart and sell it as a different point solution. And this was at the beginning of like the rise, I would say, truly of point solutions. So there was a competitor to Adobe within the digital asset management space called Canto. And I reached out to them. I was like, hey, like, I really want to sell for you. Here are the ideas that I have. Boom, boom, boom. 
um, got the job there. And if you've ever worked at like a startup before, you probably remember like your, your onboarding and coaching. Um, there wasn't any. And so my, uh, my, uh, my VP of sales at the time is a good friend of mine still to this day. He goes, what did you think about our onboarding? And I started laughing. I'm like, what onboarding? Um, and so I just kind of started doing like the onboarding and coaching for all the reps that were there. Cause I had done it so often at Adobe and eventually, um, you know, 50 plus onboarded, trained, promoted people later, it became its own department. So I went from being uh, an enterprise rep there, um, to being the head of enablement. And I've just continued to work at, you know, leading enablement department since. And then from there, I think it's not even how I got into ops. I think it's more how ops got into me. Um, how like operations and enablement are so intertwined where operations is effectively the technical funnels through which AEs work and enablement is effectively the conceptual funnels through which AEs work. So there's a nice marriage there. And uh, I think due to that, our VP of ops at user gems, Joss, shout out Joss, is one of my favorite people at the company, bar none. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and like, you know, you, you know, you gave a shout out to Josh, your former VP of sales at your at the start of Kelly So I mean, like, is there, are, I mean, are there mentors in your, in your life that, you know, you kind of, that kind of helped, that helped you get here and stuff like that or? Yeah. Well, I guess I'll be giving a lot of shout outs today. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. no, definitely. You know, I've had, I was blessed, I think early in my career to have a manager that like immediately identified, I think a certain talent for, well, actually probably seen here, like growing connections and helping people learn um, through analogies that are more common to them. And it's, it's rare to take a, a rep and, you know, put them on a path to lead a department. But if that hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't be here today. Um, and outside of that, you know, I've been blessed to meet some really intelligent minds in the enablement operations space just via LinkedIn, via conferences, um, that help me kind of reframe the way that I think about certain perspectives, which I think is the most important thing. Like, it doesn't really matter if I necessarily agree with someone's perspective. It matters that it makes me pause and think, hmm, yeah. I wonder what of this I can apply to my own role in life. So, yeah, definitely. Nobody gets anywhere, I think, without um, mentors and people that are willing to take a chance on your development. Yeah, you know, you, you, and you mentioned a good point, like, you know, you, from different perspectives, you might not agree with it, but, you know, you take some and you, you might leave a lot of it with the person who's given you the, the information, but, you know, you'll take some for yourself and how you how you, how you build off of that. So, you know, what, what, I mean, what would you tell yourself if you, you know, you went, went back in time, you know, to you know, a couple of years ago or, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it is, what kind of advice would you, would you give yourself if you went back in time? Well, there's a lot of pieces of advice I would give myself. Uh, <laughs> Most of them, we all? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like if you don't have a ton of advice to give your former self, you got, you got to step up your introspection. For sure. But I, you know, the big, <laughs> One, I think it can easily be applied to enablement on an ops. Um, enjoy the process, man. Like for me, especially coming from sales and really wanting to prove myself in enablement, I've never really enjoyed where I was at. It was always, okay, well, I've got this promotion, so I got to get the next one. And I got to get the next one. I got to get the next one. Whatever I got to do to make this happen, I'm going to do it. And in doing so, I think you don't always glean all of the value that you can out of the experiences that you're having. If you're always mindset wise in the future, you're never really actually getting much from the present. So I think that if you're someone that has the ability already to, you know, advocate for yourself and people recognize the work that you're doing, be present, you know, like the good things, all the promotions and the accolades, all that stuff, it will come 
if you've got the right eyes on you. So if you've already done the legwork to get those eyes on you, just take a breather and, uh, and, and, and let the fulfillment come from the work that you're doing. Yeah. You know, there, there is no finish line, right? So, I mean, you, know, you just have to kind of, once you get that promotion, there is that emptiness of, okay, well now it's on to the next one, right? So you really do have to enjoy the process, see the forest through the trees or whatever, you know, Zen analogy we, we know we want to use. That's a good one. That's, it's a, it's an interesting way of looking at things. True. It's funny. My, my fiance is a total other way. And I, I've said this for, for many years. Like my fiance is the type of person where she'll, uh, she'll smell like a cup of coffee and it'll be a new cup, like new type of coffee. And that will like make her day. And I'm nice. me before I was like, all right, I don't know how to have fun unless we're at the, to our earlier example, at the Carlton spending a million dollars. So like yeah. being able to take a step back and really enjoy the small things in life that make it worth living to you. Um, it's something that it's got to be learned for a lot of people, whether that's professionally or personally. True, true. And it takes time. You know, even, even a project like RevOps, I mean, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. All right. So what do you do for fun, Rax, when you're not, when you're not doing this RevOps stuff? Uh, a lot of things. Uh, my fiance and I are big skiers and scuba divers. So during the summer, we're doing a lot of scuba diving. During the winter, we're doing a lot of skiing. Uh, I big basketball fan grew up. It's actually, this is a funny anecdote. Um, when I was in France, and you got to remember, this is France in the 90s, before the Euro even came out. Uh-huh. I had a teacher who asked me, what did I want to be when I grew up? And my mom is American, and I said I wanted to be Alan Iverson. And Here you go. Well, my French teacher, of course, has no idea who that is, and her response is, well, I'm sure if you take enough singing lessons, um, you'll be able to <laughs> <laughs> He had an album. Alan Iverson had an album, right? 40 yeah, Gems? Right. 40 that's Gems? Yeah, yeah. That's right. And it's actually not a bad album. Um, I'd be surprised if that teacher knew about that. But um, yeah, I'm <laughs> an NBA fan as well. Um, outside of that, my uh, my grandparents are etymologists, so I grew up reading a lot, still read a lot, try to uh, try to stay off the, the Netflix as much as I can, but I always name things. So what, what kind of what kind of stuff do you read? I mean, what's, what, what, what kind of stuff's on your bookshelf? Uh, a lot of fiction, a lot of dystopia. Um, right now, I actually, it's funny, I bought a bunch of books, like 25 books, and the search for these books were just books that were banned in other countries. And I'm serious. No, it's been super, super interesting. I'm reading this book right now. Uh, it's called Money by Martin Amos. It's not about money at all. The very first line of the book is, what is there for a man to do alone at 11 p.m. in New York City except go in search of trouble and damage? I'm like, okay, this book is like that the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for our earlier point, the types of things that I read are fiction that I know will challenge the way that I see both the world around me and myself. So it's a good thing to, to do. I mean, we'll have to look up money and then put, it, put a link to it in the comments or something. Great um, book. Great book. What, uh, what, where can people find out more about you, Braxton? Um, certainly. I mean, I think LinkedIn is a good place. Probably, probably the only place. I'm not on the internet too much. Um, but outside of that, if anybody's listening to this and wants to get in touch and have a laugh, definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to, happy to chat. And tell us a little bit about user gems. If you're a company that's interested in squeezing more value out of the people that you know are already your fans, Newsflash, it's not just the decision makers, it's the people that were involved in the deal, it's the end users, the product power users. Um, those people are going to be moving to new companies, they're going to be coming to target accounts that you're probably working. Some of them are probably going to be on meetings without you logging them. Much easier time uh, having those people buy from you again than net cold. So 
if that's a strategy that you're working on or, or one that sounds intriguing, uh, definitely check out user drums. Well, I mean, you know, this has been, uh, this has been very, very unique. We talked about user gems product. We've talked about, uh, you know, how not all revenue is good revenue. We've talked about you know, how RevOps is, is very similar in SaaS and in other industries like, you know, luxury, luxury hotels and big ticket items like cars. I mean, this is not your typical RevOps conversation. Brexit is definitely <laughs> not your typical RevOps. You're not your typical RevOps guru either. So, you know, thank you very much for, uh, taking some time to, to jam with us on this today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and uh, to the audience, anyone listening or listening at home or wherever, if you uh, learned something today or, you know, laughed a little at some of these stories, uh, you know, tell someone about the podcast and, uh, you know, we'll uh, be happy to, we'll be happy you, we'll be happy you did. Braxton, you know, again, thanks a lot for, uh, for being here again. Thank you so much. This has been another exciting episode of RevOps 500. We will see you guys all next time. Thanks, everyone. And that wraps up another episode of RevOps 500. Thanks for joining. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at RevOps500.com. RevOps 500 is sponsored by Computer, providing technical and development expertise to growth-focused marketing.